0: Hey Climbers, welcome back to Climb by VSC, a weekly show about building and scaling startups in the world of climate innovation. My name is Jay Kapoor, General Partner of VSC Ventures and co-host of Climb. Every week, I, or a member of our VSC team, will speak with a pioneer in the climate tech world about emerging technologies and novel ideas that will turn the tide on climate change. We've all heard enough of the doom and gloom. It's time for stories of purpose-driven innovation that lead to sustainable, positive change. As always, I'm so happy that you've decided to join us. Now let's climb. Hey Climbers, welcome back to another episode of Climb by VSC. I am thrilled today to have David McCall on Climb. David is currently the Executive Director of Stanford Climate Ventures, SCV, not to be confused with VSC, and he's the Graduate Research Fellow at the Steyer-Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance. He's also a partner at Echelon, an early stage venture capital fund, and its affiliate Shoreline Capital. David, you're doing some really awesome things. Uh, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, Jay, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's an honor, and you've had some some great friends of Stanford Climate Ventures on this podcast before, so I'm excited to talk about it.
0: Yeah, well, we, we've we heard them sing your praises, and so we're excited to actually have the, uh, the legend with us here in the flesh. So let's start, uh, David, with some of the origins of Stanford Climate Ventures and maybe share a little bit of the scope of your work as the executive director of the program.
1: Yeah, definitely. So everything about Stanford Climate Ventures and Um, kind of the students and the companies that have come out of the class is built on the foundation that Dave Danielson built. And Dave Danielson is um, he's a managing director at Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is a large uh, climate investment fund. And, you know, he's he's a legend in the space. His companies are Redwood Materials, Form Energy, Fervo Energy, Lilac, uh, Cobalt, like the list goes on and on. He's just one of the best in this space. And um, I think he would say the way that he's gotten there is through the communities that he's kind of built in, in climate and energy. And so it kind of all started when he was a grad student at MIT in uh, material science. And there were all these different things going on around campus related to energy and climate, but not a lot of coordination between who was working on what. And so as a grad student, he, uh, he figured out how to get everybody together and just talking about what they wanted to work on, and uh, you know, he was doing that by just buying pictures of Coors Light for people at the uh, Muddy Charles Pub, and just creating a social cohesion for for people to come together, and that turned into the MIT Energy Club, uh, which is now kind of the biggest energy club on any on any college campus, yeah. and has I think you know thousands of people every year coming through it. Um, and then from there, he went on to go be employee number one in founding ARPA-E which is kind of the government's version of bringing all of these people together to work on uh, parallel sets of, of targets together. And uh, he got pulled over to Stanford and said, I want to go do what I've done building these communities and go build it at the number one destination for entrepreneurship, which, uh, which was Stanford at the time. And there's kind of a natural, um, a natural tendency for people who want to go build big things to, to go there and, Dave kind of said, if I can build the community and bring the playbook for starting these companies to there, I think something special could happen. So in 2016, uh, he came over to Stanford and and did the beginnings of what is now Stanford Climate Ventures. It looked very different at the time. It was kind of... uh, couple grad students hanging out in a room. Not many people were interested in this space in 2016, 17. And that went from 10 grad students in a room talking about nerdy energy stuff together to some really amazing companies that that came out of that first cohort. Uh, companies like Fervo Energy, Weave Grid, Nitricity, Guide Wheel, ones that we've heard of today. And it, it's nice because now they're success stories, but it was all built on uh, Dave just saying, how can I bring people together and and give them my network and my playbook for starting these things? We now have about 200 students that come through the class every year. Um, you know, mostly mostly grad students, about half PhD and and uh, masters in different engineering degrees, and about half MBAs or or law students or something like that. Of the 80 four projects that have gone through the class, 45 of them have turned into companies that have raised over half a billion in in funding and uh, employ something like 300 people at this point. So it's been a great launch pad, but it's all kind of built on just the community aspect of how can we bring everyone who's fired up about this together on the same team.
0: Yeah, I I love that story uh, for a couple of reasons, David, because one, I started my venture career at an accelerator. So I started at Techstars New York uh, back in 2015 and 2016. And that that idea of community, um, I think, is so powerful because a lot of founders would come into Techstars, I think, for, for a host of reasons. You know, they, they wanted some content and education around company building. They wanted to build their network, uh, you know, with VCs who would fund their company. And I think to a person, if you ask them after the sort of three month program what they got the most value out of it was the knowledge sharing amongst all the other founders that were in the group let's say 15 founders you know one may be building b2b one may be building b2c but ultimately it's the the sort of basic aspects of company building that they were sharing from each other's experiences that was actually the accelerant um, you know even less so or even more so sorry than uh, somebody coming in and saying hey here are 10 investors for you to meet all that stuff is there but that community i think is is what stays so long to the point where a lot of us still get together, you know, for drinks seven eight years later at different phases in our our company building careers. Um, it's it's still very very strong. So I, I love to hear that community was sort of the center of it. How did you find your way there? Um, the, the, what what brought you to to doing this work now here at Stanford Climate Ventures?
1: Yeah, so I've been in the energy space. Um, both in the startup scene and at a big energy company. And I came back to Stanford to do my master's um, in energy engineering around the same time that Dave was launching this class. So I actually was a master's student in uh, one of the first iterations of, of Stanford Climate Ventures. It was called something else back then. It was a energy transformation collaborative, but it was, it was the same idea. And so I, I took that class and led a project uh, through it that ended up not being the right technology for that market. So I didn't end up turning it into a company, but I saw how special, uh, of, of a community that Dave and Joel were building at the time. And to me, it was mostly just, those were the people that I found myself hanging out with around campus, right? The people who wanted to nerd out on energy and climate stuff. And this was where they were hanging out. And so I saw that this was kind of the focal point for where a lot of them were gathering. And I wanted to help Build that. So, uh, I, I helped mm-hmm. with a couple more projects that went through the class throughout the rest of my masters. And from there, when I graduated, I went into the venture side. But uh, I was also still there helping just organically grow the community and also to surround them with all of the people that we know in the climate and energy world. And uh, you know, one mm-hmm. of the one of the big things about this class is. When you're going through with a project, we we require them to do seventy to a hundred discovery calls with people that are in the real world working on these things that can that can lend insight yep. to really pressure test what their idea is and sort of iterate back and forth between taking it into into the classroom and then going out into the real world. So now my role as the executive director is to kind of run the whole platform and, and mostly to build that network around the class.
0: As somebody who's been in and around, um, I'll call it climate venture or, or climate innovation uh, for so many years, how have you seen the the needs of founders change Um, And maybe, you know, contrast that a little bit. You're on Stanford's campus. You're seeing startups being built in all different categories. Um, What is it that climate founders specifically need um, at the earliest stages to to really be successful?
1: Yeah. Um, One of the things that has worked well is we've been able to bring in climate specific founders, successful ones into the class to give their lessons. Right. Uh, Stanford's very good about giving the playbooks and entrepreneurship and everything. But there's a couple of different skill sets that you need when you're starting a climate company. Um, They take longer. They generally are more capital intensive. There's usually some sort of regulation involved. And one of the great things about Dave and Joel's network and Jane's is they can pull in people like Gene Berdeshevsky of SELA. They can bring in the Mateo Jaramillo of form energy. They can bring in the people who have really done it in these hard to build spaces to give the kind of specific playbooks for the kind of tools you're going to need as you're going. And then we can bring in people who, who know those spaces incredibly well, right? We've got people on the policy side. We've brought in uh, people who have scaled companies before to kind of talk about, Hey, how do you grow these things? How do you have a sales playbook? Um, And the best part is we now have some successful alumni that can come back and say those specific toolkits. So Uh, Lauren Dunford, who's the founder of Guidewheel and was one of the first um, companies to come out of the class, she now comes back and gives one of our our sales lectures. And aside from the fact that she just has so much energy and is so passionate about it, she's done this herself and said, how can I get as close to my customers as possible to really understand them and translate that into... Uh, what we need to build as a product. And so she comes back and gives that lecture. So there's a lot of, of uh, specific tools that you need as a as a climate entrepreneur that we now have kind of all of the, the people that have done it before coming back and giving best practices. Um, and I think one of the things that's changed dramatically is how much capital has come into this space over the last five years. You know, in, in 2016, 17, 18, when we were first doing this, uh, a lot of those sources of capital didn't exist either on the venture side or just everyone who's using venture is the only tool. And now there's so many other things, both within Stanford at the earliest stages, getting grants, getting fellowships to go figure out what it is exactly you're working on to um, getting non-dilutive capital to getting project finance, as we talked about, and um, all of those other tools that you can use to to resource your your company. Um, and. So that one has changed dramatically since uh, 2017, 18. There's just a, a whole swath of of financial tools that uh, that projects and companies can tap into that that weren't there even just five years ago.
0: I'm really glad you you spoke about the sort of different playbooks that are there. Um, so for those of our listeners who are not lucky enough to to go and be a part of this collaboration at Stanford, um, could you share one or two? like lessons or insights from from some of these guest speakers that you've had that like still stick out to you where you go, wow, I hadn't thought of it. And, and now I can't see the world a, a different way. Now that I've heard these things.
1: Tim Latimer of Fervo of Energy. He talks about um, when he was starting Fervo is a geothermal enhanced geothermal company. Um, and in 2017, no one was looking at geothermal. And so when Tim was starting this, he would go to DC, and absolutely nobody wanted to talk to him about what he was building. Even though uh, he was kind of saying, "Hey, I think I've got one of the few kind of baseload renewable energy sources that we can use that is in line with everybody's vision of of where they want to get to with their with their net zero goals," um, and nobody really wanted to talk to him. But he would still show up a couple times a year and just bang on the door and educate people. Um, and you know, five years in. Now there's a lot more attention around it. And he already knows all of the people uh, kind of from the federal government to state governments to local uh, public utility commissions that that uh, are, are working on this and has kind of those relationships and is able to educate them. So that's kind of one of the playbooks he's been teaching is how do you think about what you're going to need from a policy perspective early on and start building those relationships far before you actually need anything to happen. Um, and then, uh, another one is, uh, as we talked about with Lauren Dunford, right. Uh, and, yeah. and, her sales process, but when she started, no one really understood the vision for what she had, which was, uh, improving the energy efficiency of factories and to really understand what the customer needed. She went to Kenya, which was where they, she both had connections to a lot of factories, but also where they had factories that, um, any downtime there was dramatically going to cut into their um, their economics and so she went out there and basically lived on the factory floors understanding everything and realizing hey if i can just give visibility into when these machines might go down um, that's what they want as the customer and then on the back end i can utilize that to make everything operate as efficiently as possible and so her playbook is all about how do you get as close to the, po- the customer as possible to realize what do they want and how can you accomplish your goals through what it is they want. And now she's working on expanding it all over the US in more advanced factories that now really understand um, what the value add is. Um, and so those are some great ones. And then, uh, you know, some of it is just being scrappy. There's uh, one of my favorite stories is Nico Pankowski of, of Nitricity. And Nitricity is working on kind of decentralized fertilizer production with on-site renewables. Yep. And from their techno-economic analysis that they did through the class, they kind of realized the exact price point that they needed the on-site solar to be built for in order to to uh, hit their unit economics. And uh, at the time, he was getting a lot of quotes. I think the cost has come down, and they've 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 gotten uh, some some partners on the solar development side, but they were getting quotes that were too high for what they needed. And so uh, Nico and the nitricity team would go out on site and build their own solar. And I remember he figured out exactly how many steel beams fit on his Subaru uh, because it started bending on one. He's like, all right, that's one too many. I got to take it off. And that's just the kind of scrappiness to like figure out what you need and, and, and what to hit That we see in a lot of these founders that go on to build the successful companies.
0: No, David, these are such fantastic examples because I think they, in each one, speak to a really unique like founder trait, right? You you talked about scrappiness. Um, There's the patience of having to go and educate people many years ahead of when the market actually catches up, right? 2017, nobody's talking about geothermal now. I mean, the number of geothermal investments that have been made in the last uh, 12 months. Probably pales in comparison in terms of size to what you know hasn't happened in the last uh, five years prior. Um, you talked a little bit about uh, customer obsession. Uh, I mean, these are all traits I think that when a founder is pitching a VC, these are the things that a VC is looking for. From your perspective, somebody who's you know now scouted and sourced hundreds of these investments over your career when you're evaluating a founder for the program or or even just broadly when you're evaluating an investment what are the traits that you're looking for in these founders and how are you able to kind of draw those out to say hey this is a founder that has it and somebody i want to work with versus maybe somebody who doesn't
1: when we're looking at projects there's kind of a couple key aspects that we're looking for in teams um one is we want them to be looking at a white space that no one else is looking at. Um, That's kind of where the most interesting stuff is and where if you put in the work to understand why nothing has happened there, you can get what we call the earned secret of, and that happens through hundreds and hundreds of conversations, but you get that earned secret of nobody's doing it. And it's because everyone thinks it's this, but it's actually this. Um, And so uh, we want people who are looking at spaces that are sort of untouched. We call them the white spaces. And uh, we try to kind of push students to look at that through. So we do the project-based class in winter and spring quarter. And in the fall, we bring in, uh, it's just a lecture series where we'll bring in experts in different verticals of climate to kind of say, hey, this is what my vertical looks like. This is the state of the art. Here's who's doing what. And here's where nobody's doing anything. That if I was a group of, fired up Stanford students, I'd go try to figure out. I think the prime example of that is now you hear a lot more about cement. Um, But uh, five years ago, nobody was really looking at cement. And Dave gave Dave Danielson, gave a lecture on uh, specific to cement and what we could do to decarbonize that. And that has prompted a whole bunch of companies uh, and projects. And we've had uh, three or four projects in the class uh that were kind of in the twenty eighteen to twenty twenty timeframe that are now companies in the cement space that a bunch of people know. And so we had uh, brimstone energy, uh Sublime Systems and Ferno Materials all came out of that kind of yeah. time span. And and specifically from Dave saying, hey guys, no one's working on cement. Can somebody please do it? I think there's huge opportunity here.
0: So we we talked about, you know, going after a big white space, the earned secrets idea um, what are some of the other skills or traits? Because uh, I'm I'm very very curious about that as an early stage investor myself.
1: Yeah, the second thing we we look for in project teams, um, aside from a white space, is just passion around the problem space, right? Um, mm-hmm. As they're going, our class is ten weeks, and in those ten weeks, I would say the average amount of pivots that a that a project team has is four. And you're constantly changing what you understand once you actually go test it out in the real world. And the only thing that's going to keep you driving when you're constantly getting feedback why it won't work, what's what's wrong with the idea, is if you have such a such a passion for solving this that nothing's going to get in your way to uh, to to try to go figure it out. And so we look for teams that have diverse skill sets, as I've said, because. It, you need all of those different tools in the toolkits and and you need people who can kind of carry different parts of the team, just like any company, but at the project level and people who just want to figure out the problem. And, and a lot of the time we call that the uh, what's wrong with this person question, uh, where just every time someone tells them like, hey, it's not going to work. Or everyone. every time someone says, please stop wasting your time on this. I'd love to see you go do something else. They're like, yeah. I just know there's something here and I'm going to keep working on it. And I'd say on top of that is you know, how involved in the community do they want to be? Because again, so much of this is having those relationships and knowing who's doing what and having the people that you can reach out to and lean on when you don't know the answers. Um, and mm-hmm. so those are really the three things is are they working on a, on a white space that's relatively unaddressed? Are they fired up about the problem and have kind of the uh, the diverse team to go chase it down? And are they a part of this community so that they can both uh, get and give to all the people that want to work on these problems?
0: Yeah, all, all three are, are wonderful traits. Um, as somebody who has worked with first time founders as well as experienced founders, are there specific things that experienced founders do differently? that you think more first-time founders could learn from and what are they
1: yeah um, so mateo jaramillo who's the ceo of form energy and a friend of of the class um, i heard from him once that i think he said first-time founders normally focus on on product second-time founders focus on distribution and so it's it's vitally important to get the product right. And yeah. that means understand the exact customer need that you are doing, that you are addressing 10 times better than anyone else's. Um, and that is really a core of what we focus on in the class and what all companies, it's the only startup advantage is, are you doing one thing 10 times better than anybody else can? Um, but him as a, as a seasoned founder, kind of says, the other thing that you need to have in mind is distribution. How are you going to get this into the hands of those customers? And uh, yeah. the more times you do this, the more you realize you need to be thinking about that from the start. Is your product being built in a way that you can distribute it? Do you have key relationships that let you get in there once you have uh, built the right product for the right customer? Um, and so I'd say that's that's one thing that uh, we've we've recently been hearing a lot from the, from the experienced founders that we're trying to... In part on uh on some of the newer founders is think about distribution and how you're going to get this into the hands of the customers from the start because then you'll build your product in a way that lets you um, get it into the hands as as many people as you can to go provide value to them
0: where i love to to chat with a lot of our guests david and i gave you a heads up before we got on the mic was uh this hyper hopeful segment that our audience loves so i'm going to keep doing it uh we pick a trending topic we want to get our guest's opinion on whether it's promising or all hype, and we can treat it like a rapid fire round, so we don't have to go too deep on any one of them unless you want to. Um, So I'll throw out a statement, I'll ask you hyper hopeful, and then we'll dive in. Does that sound good?
1: That sounds perfect.
0: Uh, So direct air capture is often touted as a game-changing technology. You mentioned a couple of the the direct air uh, companies earlier in our conversation, but a lot of critics today are saying it's far too energy intensive and expensive to actually scale um what's your take on direct air capture is it hype or hopeful
1: yeah i mean i think it's going to be an all hands on deck type of situation and and we're going to need uh that type of tech in parallel with all of the other things that are that are being developed um what gives me hope in that specific one is kind of the companies that i already talked about that have come out of our uh, that have come out of our class like holocene um they're developing a novel technology that has so much potential to work on such a more efficient scale uh, to to capture CO two and we've also got uh, Frauke Kruk, who's who's an alumni of our uh, of our class she leads uh, she's the head of science for for Stripe's uh, Frontier Fund and they're just looking at so many different things that have the potential to remove CO two from the atmosphere in different ways. Uh, and and you know she's one of the smartest people I know. And if she's saying there's all of these potential technologies out there that are not just high potential, but ready to deploy, then uh, I got to trust her on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So on the all hands on deck conversation, I know a lot of folks say this about fusion energy as well, but I'm gonna change the question a little bit. I'll say fusion energy's ability to have a near term impact and we'll say within the next decade. Is that hype or hopeful? Well, I'll say that I'm hoping that it's hopeful because
1: uh, we could we could certainly use a, a, a breakthrough technology like that and kind of a baseload source of, of uh, dense power. Um, I don't actually know the space that well personally. We've, we haven't had anything go through the class in the Fusion space, um, which is probably an interesting data point in itself. But I do know a bunch of people that are yeah. working on it and, uh, you know, we're close with a lot of the folks over at lower carbon capital. They've got a whole fund dedicated to it. And a lot of the tech innovation that's coming out of that is, uh, is very promising. And so I'm hopeful that, yeah. that it turns into something. And again, you need to be working on these things in parallel. We need to be working on the things we know now and the things that are near term innovations, um, and keep putting things keep putting resources towards uh, fusion energy and the big swings that, uh, that could do it. But I know a lot of people on the inside that know the tech really well that, uh, you know, have said a decade seems reasonable. So that gives me hope.
0: Wow. OK. And maybe the most interesting data point here for me, David, is that uh, despite the fact that there's a lot of movement in the capital markets for fusion, there hasn't been as much movement, at least in, in your program. Uh, for folks that want to focus on those projects or uh, those kinds of companies. So maybe we need another uh, cement-like lecture to get more of these folks galvanized uh, the, the way that they did uh, around some of the cement and concrete companies you talked about. Uh, all right, I'll do our last hyper-hopeful. Um, AI is sort of the buzzword of today, uh, and it's being touted as a tool for climate modeling, for predicting natural disasters, Um you know, I think it's also fair to say folks often overestimate what AI is able to do in the face of some pretty complex industries. Um, what is your feeling on the integration of AI into climate challenges? Hype or hopeful?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm realizing now I'm a bad person to ask all these questions to because uh, I'm so optimistic about everything. Mostly because <laughs> you know, uh, if you ever need a jolt of optimism in the uh, in the climate fight. Please come swing by our Stanford class because these students are so smart and so fired up and just ready to attack these problems head, head on that you can't help but walk out of there thinking like, oh, yeah, we, we've got this. It may take us a while, but we've got the right people working on it. So I've got huge optimism across the board um, on the A.I. side. Yeah, we've seen some awesome things, even just in our class. I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, companies that are already out there applying a lot of these tools. I think generally, I'd say uh, AI is becoming so ubiquitous that it's just a part of every company in in Climate and Beyond's toolkit that they're going to need to use. Um, some of the ones that are specific, we, we have a company that came out of our class called High Tide, um, which is doing sea level rise modeling um, for cities and municipalities on uh, and states on uh, on how kind of all of their um, real assets are going to be affected over next several years and decades and that's been a powerful tool for uh communities to understand what is the risk we're facing and what options do we have um to go do something about it and and we've had a bunch of other companies um one of the one of the best ones uh funds that deals specifically in this space is called um uh, blue bear capital they work specifically at the intersection of of climate and energy and AI. And, uh, they know this space yeah. really well and, and we've worked with them on some stuff. And so if anyone wants to go dig into the companies that are making a difference there, go look at blue bears portfolio. Um, you know, one that that's, uh, that, uh, I knew from life before Stanford climate ventures that, uh, that's a blue bear company is called Raptor maps and they, uh, kind of take imaging of uh, solar farms to understand exactly where all the faults are and how the panels are performing and, and optimizing. Um, so it's not just on the natural disaster and understanding kind of the, uh, the environmental world. It's also on, how are we operating on the things that are transitioning us, uh, towards a climate positive world? And they've just done a killer job with yeah. that. And it's a great example of how you can use all of these tools to, uh, to do everything from from understanding and data collecting to actual operations.
0: Yeah, I, I can tell you as a as an investor looking at the earliest stages, the speed at which AI is being integrated in these companies can often feel a little overwhelming. I'll be honest. Right. So climate in and of itself is such a vast category, energy transition, materials transition, decarbonization. And then now the integration of AI into these businesses um One, it can be hard to tell, like, who's actually using AI and who's just using, you know, some sort of data predictive modeling. And the second is that just there's so many industries that still need that level of, like, technological integration. And so I am uh, right there with you on the hopeful side. I I want more of these companies to exist. Uh, I I will say in terms of, like, what is investable, um, I'm still sifting through it. So I'm still trying to figure it out where the investability is at the intersection of AI and climate um, I know we're coming up on time, David, so uh, I'll, I'll close with the question that we close with a lot of our guests on. And, and you already started uh, touching on on some of it. But since you're our injection of optimism on a Friday morning, talk to us about what gives you hope and optimism in this fight against climate change uh, in a world that has a lot of doom and gloom. Uh, what keeps you hopeful?
1: Yeah. And I think um, my answer to this parallels why I got into the climate space and how it's evolved over time. So when I first got into climate, I'd say it was very fear-based. I remember I was a sophomore in college. I was going down the finance route and it was, I had that moment that a lot of people in this space have where they're like, oh my gosh, we're screwed. I need to go work on this because otherwise if I'm not working on this, I'm going to stay up at night just thinking about it. Um, And then kind of midway through my experience in it, or, or maybe not midway, but a little bit after that, I started realizing, wait, if this is where the world's biggest problems are, it's also where the world's biggest opportunities are. And we can go build some really cool companies. Um, and where I've kind of landed on now, which was sort of tying back to the beginning of this, which was, I just saw Dave Danielson getting all of The people i liked hanging out with around campus in one room talking about this stuff is it's the it's the industry that naturally brings in the best talent people just want to work on this and so what gives me optimism is you've got all of the world's best minds most fired up people the hardest workers coming into this space and saying forget like i've seen the models Forget like the doom and gloom. I'm going to go build something. I'm going to go do something about this. And that's what fires me up about this space. That's why we run the class. Um, That's why we want to build this community around it. Because uh, when you're around that level of energy and enthusiasm and, uh, and drive, it's hard not to be optimistic every day about where we can get to.
0: I, I love that, David. I'm fired up. I might be too old to go back to school, but uh, whatever we can do to get involved with uh, Stanford Climate Ventures, uh, you're you're a great pitch man, man. You've got me hyped up. You've got me hopeful. Uh, so so we'd love to. Uh, I guess let's let's tell our uh, audience one last time uh, where they can find some of the content that you've referenced over this conversation and where they can learn more about uh, Stanford Climate Ventures.
1: Yeah. So if you go to stanfordclimateventures.org. That's our website. Uh, I will say it's still a work in progress, but it's got a lot of information on kind of what the class is about, uh, the alumni companies that have come out. A bunch of them are hiring. So if you're looking to get into this space, like go check out those companies. Um, and great. then uh, we also have the, the playbooks tab, which is where we're accumulating all of our favorite resources in the different uh, parts of the toolkit.
0: That's fantastic. David McCall, thank you so much for joining me on CLIMB today. This was really fun.
1: Thanks, Jay. It's been awesome.
0: Well, that's all for this week's episode of Climb by VSC. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Special thanks to Credo for their help in producing and promoting this episode. To visit any part of today's conversation again, you can find the full transcript on vscventures.com. Our thanks to Josue Ramiro for posting these every week. Lastly, if you've listened this far, please leave us a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. It only takes a few seconds, really helps us out, and as far as I know, it's still carbon neutral. Well, that's all for now. We'll see you all next week on Climb by VSC.